Hello, and welcome to Crisonia Conversations, where entrepreneurs, experts, and investors explore change in the global food system. I'm Sarah Mock, your host for today's discussion. Today, we're talking about the connection between plant health and the quality, health, and taste of food. Of particular interest in this conversation will be how a field-proven patented peptide solution called Vizmax is showing promise in reversing citrus greening, which is negatively impacting the citrus industry and citrus quality for, from grove to grocer. To help us dive into this really uh, technical topic, we're joined by Brian Thompson, CEO of Elemental Enzymes, and Vani Estes, VP of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association. Brian is CEO and co-founder leading the daily innovations at Elemental Enzymes. Elemental is a biotech company that specializes in bringing innovation and impactful products into agriculture and animal health, developing scientifically driven products that are vetted and delivered for use by growers of crops worldwide. Their products are predominantly sourced from enzymes, proteins, peptides, and chemistry. And Vani is the vice president of technology at the Produce Marketing Association, where she navigates solutions to solve food production problems. Vani is driven by a passion for agriculture and sustainability. She works with companies to navigate, develop, and commercialize innovations. Specific areas of value add are business development, partnership strategies, industry network, board of directors, navigating access and commercialization of gene editing, plant genetics, alternative protein, and specialty crops. She's also the host of the podcast, PMA Takes on Tech. So, so excited to have both Brian and Vani here with us today. Many of the conversations we've had so far this year have pointed to the broad fact that fresh is, is better when it comes to food as health. And sometimes it seems like if we could just kind of systematically switch more significantly to fresh produce, that everything would be better, that we'd solve a lot of our problems. But that assumption overlooks the fact that there are issues in fresh produce too, and opportunities to make fresh and produce more competitive to processed alternatives. So Brian, your company is looking to address one of these issues, citrus greening. What is that? Yeah, citrus greening is a fairly devastating disease of oranges. Citrus greening is a bacterium. Um, it's a disease that's spread from tree to tree by a small fly-like insect called a psyllid. The psyllid will suck up the bacteria from one affected tree, fly to another, and inject the bacteria, similar to if people think of like malaria or um, Zika. Um, the, the bacteria continue to develop within those trees over a number of years and they basically lead to a slow decline of those trees and ultimately will lead to the death of that tree. And so as your grows get infected you can see that the bacteria builds up in your different trees it keeps spreading and you'll see the every consecutive year there's less and less oranges produced in those groves and this is spread to 90 percent of the groves in florida i think that the impact of citrus greening is much greater than most people realize and just in florida they've had a 4.6 billion dollar loss revenue due to the impact of citrus greening get into their groves so when you look at the the total u.s uh, produce industry it's 61 billion dollars at retail and so about it's about half fruit and vegetables um, citrus is 14% of total fruit, and that makes it about 6.8% of total produce. So it's a really big part of, of the produce industry as a, as a single commodity. If you look at even the job impact, there's 30,000 jobs that were lost because of greening taking out the groves. There's packing houses that have gone under, processing houses, and all the related parts of that industry that have also you know, shrunken since the uh, start of the citrus greening impact. That gets to a great question that I think is super relevant to ask right now, which is that, you know, I don't think consumers 
most consumers have probably ever even heard of citrus greening. Is, is this something that consumers should know more about, this, this thing that's really upsetting kind of the whole industry worldwide? I mean, it's certainly important in the industry and I think other diseases, you know, there was a disease of papayas that almost wiped out all the papaya industry in Hawaii and that was solved through breeding. Um, and so now we have papayas that come from Hawaii and we wouldn't have otherwise. And, um, but I, I think, you know, consumers can only take so much in. And so I, I think it would be important for them to know. And I, I'm certainly, I'm certain in Florida that people are probably more aware of it as they drive by and see entire groves dying. That probably is, is more real to them. And if they know people that have orchards, but I think, you know, your, your person in the Midwest going to the grocery store buying orange juice is just probably not aware of that this is happening. And I'd second that as well. I think that outside of Florida and California, people are not as aware of this disease attacking the oranges. Um, there's been a gradual shrinking of the size of oranges because of citrus grading. There've been some very subtle things that the consumers may have picked up on, but you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that you know outside of those two regions that there's it's well known about the impact. Even globally, if you look at it. It's taken out 30% of Brazil's orange groves. It's taking out orange groves around the world. And the orange groves that are not infected today are all have HLB sitting on their doorstep within 100 kilometers. So, you know, it is a global issue. And I can speak to you everywhere from Brazil to China to Thailand all have different issues and different ways of dealing with it. I think that a lot of countries basically will go in and bulldoze down groves and try to prevent infection by basically wiping out the groves that are infected. So you have some attempts to make some um, improved tree varieties out there. Uh, they're trying to do breeding, which is a very long process, but it's worked for other diseases over long periods of time. Um, and so really you'll find a, it's a mix of different approaches from different companies and there's not been a lot of successful projects that actually have led to something beneficial for the growers. This is a huge problem. Brian, talk to us a little bit about the solution your company is working on in terms of addressing citrus greening. So our company has a long history working in citrus greening. We've spent uh, five years doing research and we tried 70 different actives on citrus greening. So we, we've tried a lot and the, the leading product out of all of those concepts is a product called Vismax. And Vismax is a small peptide that goes up to the tree and tells the tree, hey, you really are infected. You need to defend yourself from citrus greening. One of the hallmarks of that particular bacterium is it can grow inside the tree and the tree can't detect that it's really there. Um, it's unique in that it not only sounds the alarm to the tree, but it also causes the tree to try to flush and grow out of it. So trees treated with Vismax actually will grow new branches, put on new oranges, and really have a striking recovery aspect on top of just fighting the disease. I want to broaden this conversation out as well because citrus greening I think is a fascinating case study to talk about kind of this wider space of, of produce and, and things that are happening kind of on the front lines of, of the produce industry. So let me zoom out a little bit and, and talk more broadly about food as health. I want to pull back on that string of um, there's just not enough Science. There's not. There hasn't been enough research to to make some of these claims. I think that folks are excited to make. How much of that is an opportunity for people who are interested in in getting involved in this space? And I think one of the things that PMA focuses on a lot is that question of transparency and being able to translate that information through the supply chain. Um, is there an opportunity there for for other either entrepreneurs or investors to become a part of answering that question and and 
you know, make, making that science available? All right, it's just my opinion, but um, I, I think that that work is really hard. And I think really understanding what's going on in the soil, how that translates into the plant and how that translates into health. I think um, a lot of those things are really difficult and I'd much rather see that be done kind of on a pre-competitive basis where, it, I mean, that's actually research. And so I'd love to see that type of work be done at universities or, or sponsored by different people. Cause I, I think, and you know, Brian can probably speak to this, but looking at that type of technology and, and getting those kinds of answers, I don't know how many investors would pay enough money for long enough to get those answers for a startup to kind of make it. Cause those are really hard questions. And there, there may be some amazing technology out there where you can just go out and, you know, point and get all the information. But even if you got information about like how much nitrogen is in the soil, how much nitrogen is in the plant, how much nitrogen you know, goes through the chain. Um, I, I still, all of those connections aren't made yet. Do you know what I mean? And so I just think that that's a, that's a, a really big issue to try to bite off and say, okay, we as a small company that just raised $10 million in venture capital are going to answer this question. I don't, I don't know that they could live through the process of coming up with those answers. And I think we're seeing this a little bit in kind of the regenerative ag space where there's a lot of claims about what's happening in the soil and how that's making everything healthier. Um, but we don't have ways to measure it yet. And I think, I think it's true, but we need ways, you know, we need to figure out some ways to measure it. Um, one other point I would make is just around the whole microbiome area, um, both the soil microbiome and the gut microbiome. I think that's another really interesting area is if you have healthy soil and you keep a healthy um, uh, microbial content in the crops that you grow and that kind of goes through with, with the crop, how does that help with your gut microbiome. And I think that's another really exciting area that we just need more science for. And Vani, one thing that you might find very interesting is that the, a lot of the microbes that colonize a root system to make them healthy are almost the same bacterial types that colonize your gut that are sold in probiotics. So there's a direct link between the same type of bacteria causing plant health and human health. Um, and they're a lot more related than most people are really studied. I've kind of looked at both sides of that. I actually came from the human side of medicine and jumped over to plants. What advice would you give to growers as they're moving forward in this space? You know, whether it's, it's a, a citrus grove owner or, uh, you know, people in other parts of, of the fruit and fresh fruit and vegetable space, how should they be evaluating greener solutions as, as they're evaluating kind of traditional technologies versus these more modern technologies. And, you know, where does human nutrition fit into that calculus? I think it's hard in a way because they have to be able to be recognized when they sell their produce or their, their product from their field. Uh, I think most growers take great pride in what they produce and they want to make the best possible product. Um, but it's hard for them to have the tools to say the healthiness of their crop at the end of the day. Um, and I think that if we can find a way that they get feedback on how, you know, how good the quality is of their fruit, that allows them to say, hey, you know, that product I bought, you know, last year really affected the quality of my fruit. And they can make the connections to, you know, what they put into their, their grove and what they get out. Um, and I think that they don't have the access to the, the full spectrum of nutritional data that they could, but I think that would that loop would close itself as soon as they actually had that feedback because like I said most of them want to grow the best possible crop. 
And I think trying to figure out how do we pull that through, you know, because there's so much of using new technology on the farm that ends up being um, the responsibility and the risk taken by the grower. And so they have to spend the money, they have to they have opportunity costs of working with this technology opposed to another one. Um, and what if it doesn't work and it does damage? And so right now, all of that is put on the grower to, to, to take all that risk on. And I think as we start having consumers say, no, I really want to know what's in my food and I, I will pay more for that and kind of pulling that through the chain, um, then maybe we'll see some of the, the larger retail chains or people involved in the supply chain being willing to pay for some of that and help pull it through. Where are the opportunities or, or other problems that could be taken on? One of the things that we're starting to see is just the results of climate change, like what's happening with climate change when you've got maybe hotter, drier, or maybe wetter, colder, and people are used to growing a certain kind of variety or growing a certain way or having a certain amount of water. So I think that's going to be a big issue over the next 10 years of people really looking at what do I need to change because the climate's changing? And so those changes can be made um, less, you know, with, with orchards, it's a little harder. You can't, can't change immediately. But if you're growing um, something from, from seed or, or an annual, um, you know, looking at what kind of breeding do we need to do and what kind of new pests and diseases are going to come in because the climate is changing. So I don't know of anything right now that's like as big and pervasive as citrus greening, but I think we, because of climate change, we're just going to see a whole different effect of what's going to be going on out there. And that's well spoken. And I think the only thing I have to add to that is really, there's always a disease, no matter how well you treat your trees or vegetables or, or fruit is there's always the next disease on the horizon. And so it's, it's a moving target for growers. They're always going to have to adapt their practices to, to fight something. And a lot of that's due to climate and new things being brought in. Um, but there's always going to be a, a target for that needs addressed in produce. It's just that that's the way it is and it's, it's going to be that way for a long time. Um, they're not all as bad as citrus greening, but you know, there's always the new threat. Is there an opportunity there um, for investors to invest maybe closer to the farm gate and, and help growers either make these evaluations or, you know, help take on some of that risk or, or shoulder some of that risk? Yeah, I think that's a, a good spot to invest. And I think it's really important. And as we start looking, um, kind of post that that post harvest like what happens right there that's a, a great stage to be investing i think one of the big challenges is 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 it a technology that they're going to be able to get a return on their investment of and is it going to be adopted and how does that get pulled through Navani is exactly right i think it, it is a all the burden seems to fall on the growers and it's a very tough for them to have to be take all the risk in this process i think that where investment could occur is maybe not your traditional investment, you know, a VC type investment, but really if you had distributors and again, just using citrus as an example, but a distributor who found a way to cause there to be a better profile of flavor or a better uh, nutritional quality to their product and having the distributor who buys those, that produce to say, Hey, talk to all your growers, say, I want everybody to use this. And then I can get a premium for, you know, having a higher quality. So I think it takes somebody at a higher level than the grower to be, you know, the innovator to bring that next step. Somebody who pools a large amount of growers to take that risk um, and have that innovation at that level. 
So in terms of this transparency question and ensuring that kind of there's there's communication of some of these attributes throughout the supply chain, one of the ones that consumers care about so much right now is is sustainability and, and the impact on the environment. Brian, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what the impact of your product is maybe versus some alternatives. And, and Vani, talk to us a little bit uh, maybe as a follow-up to what that means to consumers and, and what ca that could potentially mean in terms of the overall envir environmental impact of, of a product like oranges. I think speaking of, again, using oranges as an example, I think that over the last 10 years, everybody's thrown every conventional treatment at citrus groves in order to try to treat this particular disease. And I think the, um, the bringing the Vizmax product into citrus is really highlights the fact that a more natural greener solution can be very effective even against one of the most devastating diseases that are out there. I think the, the stigma around biological products is, well, they're fantastically in the green and sustainable, but they are not very effective. And I think that my goal is really to debunk that because with the right science behind it and the right type of solution, you can have a very powerful impact and then hence the Avismax product for citrus greening. I think it really highlights that there is potential there. There's a lot of other companies like mine that are growing that, you know, really are taking this on board and finding very scientific solutions that are greener, no residue, and, and what the consumers are looking for. Um, and I think it's a growing trend, and, and I think you'll see more and more products like the Vizmax coming in the next few years. Yeah, and I think it's exciting to see what companies are starting to come up with different technologies. And, and these tend to be, I mean, this technology does tend to come more from startups. Um, I think it's less, there are programs, the bigger um, ag chemical companies do have programs in biologicals, but one of the things that they're doing is funding smaller companies to, to have them develop the products um, and then allowing those companies to actually live and then they can, you know, use those products. But I think this is a, an area, as we talked earlier about investment, this is a really interesting area of investment is like what, what different kinds of biologicals um, can we use that are, are safer for the environment um, and um, have less residue and are safer for the people who are working out there. So I love that this whole area is uh, getting looked at. And I think as far as the consumer point of view, a lot of it is, is just communicating, like how do, how do we communicate to consumers that this product is more sustainably grown? Um, because they do care about that. We actually have a question from a, uh, a, a viewer right now. So I'm gonna t hand it over to Richard Miller uh, to ask his question. Richard, are you there? Yes, how is everyone today? I appreciate you taking my, my question. Um, with, with the uh, history of genetic modified organisms and, and some of the things that are going on in the Murdoch organization and, and what's happened, with conventional versus biologics, what do you feel is the priority for the future of food, for safety, for health, uh, disease resistant? Um, is it the state of soil conditions or moving towards regenerative farming, which seems to be more prevalent or what over the last couple of years, organic farming or involved in environmental controlled indoor farming? Or is there something else on your radar uh, that the conventional biological synergies will, will work more effective? 
Uh, yes. <laughs> so um, I think, are you, let me make sure I understand your question. So are you asking where, what's the priority of looking at biologics? Is it in those areas that you listed? Is that, is that the question you're asking? Or? Well, specifically, what's the focus of where biologics are working more effective? Ah. Is it in soil? Is it in regenerative farming concepts? Is it in organic farming concepts? Or, or are we leading towards a, a food industry that's more environmentally controlled and, or indoor farming? I don't know, Brian, do you have a, an answer to that one? I think if you look at there's different types of biologics, um, everything from enzymes. I mean, we develop enzymes. They work in both conventional systems and organic systems. Um, other microbes. I think that you'll find that biologics will work in all the different types of systems. Um, you might find different particular products that are geared towards conventional or towards organic. Um, but I think there's a large push in the industry for soil health. If you have a healthier soil, you have a healthier plant, and the end result is to make the connection between that healthier plant leading to better produce. Um, and I think that's the loop that people are trying to close is it's from the very beginning from when you plant that seed you know, all the way to harvest where there's times to alter that nutrition profile and, and biologics fit into a lot of those different points. Everything from on a seed treatment to mid-season to, you know, right near harvest. Um, yeah, I think from the indoor perspective, some of the products that I worked on early in my career, we ended up selling them into greenhouses um, because the environment was much more controlled. So that was at a time where the products just didn't work quite as well when you had all these things you couldn't control from, you know, weather and, and temperature and, and all these different things you couldn't control. And so the products worked better indoors. Um, so I think that's, that's an advantage. And I know some of the, the vertical farm companies are, are looking at these products because they, they can control better. But I think as we've talked about it, as, as the products improve and can work in these different environments, um, I think people will use more of them. And as we focus more on soil health, I think this is going to, you know, these types of products are going to gain interest. And, you know, the biggest thing about regenerative ag that I've, I've been spending some time just thinking about and talking to people about is just being able to measure what's going on. Um, it, it's really hard to know when people change their practices, what was your base level and where did you get to and what practice got you there. And so I think there's a, a great opportunity um, for technology to, to really be able to measure what's going on in the soil and then seeing, you know, what are we doing that's actually improving it. Yeah, and I think what you're referring to is kind of looking at on, on the previous discussion is on when you put a microbe in all the different environments that are in, let's say, U.S. agriculture. I mean, it's hard to think that that microbe has evolved for working in Ohio, California, Florida, North Dakota, and working in all the soils. So you'll see some regionality or in greenhouses, they like that particular soil mix. And you can see there's more of a consistent response. One of the good things about some of the newer biologics like enzymes or natural chemistries is they're not susceptible to that and, um, you know, soil type. They're more about working in lots of environments. And so I think these newer biologics are broadening the scope of where you can use the products and they're less condition dependent as some of the ones in the past. And I think the whole industry is moving towards broader active biologics. That's a great point. That's really good. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much for your question. Uh, just a reminder for other folks, if you, you 
have questions for our panelists, hop down to the Q&A. We will, uh, as soon as I see them come up, I will get them asked or, or get you on to ask them yourself. Until then, um, Brian, talk to us a little bit about, you know, I think the broader discussion we're having here as part of Crusonia Conversations is about the intersection of food and health. And I think we have, you can have a very simplistic idea of health, but we're starting to encapsulate and, and capture a, a much broader one that includes, you know, how human health is impacted by soil health and how food is impacted by soil health. And, and I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what is some of these solutions and, and using enzymes instead of antibiotics or some of these other technologies, what might the link be between using this product and impacts on human health? Yeah, I think, you know, not to hurt so, but it all starts from the very beginning. If you can get a healthier soil environment for that plant to grow in, the plant will grow. It'll take more nutrition out of that soil. If it has more nutrition and more plant tissue, it can pack more sugar, flavor, profile, all those into tomatoes and citrus. And it, it is all linked. The healthier you can make the plant, the better it's growing, the better the end product that comes out of it, both the size, quality. Um, I think that the, you know, the goal is to, you know, stimulate that plant from the beginning and keep it going. I think some of the interesting things are even just looking at nature, a lot of the microbes that populate a root system are also the same microbes that are sold as probiotics for humans. So if you look at the, the things that are beneficial to a plant are often beneficial to humans. And so you'll see a very high correlation that we get a lot of our probiotics from our plants that we eat, um, as well as the supplements that come with it. But there is a natural source of the same probiotics that come from having a healthier soil system. Um, and it all is really linked. And I think people are just now making all those connections, but it is all linked. Um, the healthy plant equals healthier food equals you know, healthier humans. Well, and I wonder, Vonnie, maybe you can speak to this. You know, I think we've accepted, there's been an acceptance for a while. I, I'll use the example of the tomato. I feel like that's the most common one of, of we've, chosen, you know, things like shelf stability and, and consistent ripening times, um, ability to, to be picked in an, a super efficient way and, and be stored effectively for long periods of time to be able to get, you know, large scale production crops to retail in a desirable way. And we've just accepted, I think that, okay, well, they're not going to taste as good. We've, we've prioritized other things and we've let flavor, sugar content, nutrition, those kind of things fall to the wayside. Could solutions like, like the one that you've talked about and the ones where we've talked about kind of throughout these conversations, could those, you know, get us to a place where we don't have to make quite as much of a trade-off? Yeah, I think definitely that's happening. You know, I mean, um, plant breeders have heard consumers loud and clear, finally, <laughs> that um, we really want we really want a tomato that tastes decent. And it's not, you know, a, a lot of it is genetics, and so there's a lot of genetics companies that are 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 looking at breeding for taste and nutrition. And but it's a very complex profile. It's not just you know, what you learned in biology class that it's like, you know, one gene, you know, the blue eyes, brown eyes. I mean, it's not, it's not simple like that. It's very complex. There's all sorts of different factors that, that come in to taste. And then taste is uh, somewhat subjective. You know, we've, we've found in, in the work that's been done across the world that people want different things. And we'll tell you a, a tomato, a good tasting tomato um, it's a different profile depending on where you live. And so there's those factors that go into it. And then there's a lot that happens, you know, 
in the supply chain to the tomato. Um, and one of the things, you know, you, you hear people talk about all the time, you know, don't refrigerate your tomatoes because that breaks down the flavor profile. So, um, so there's a lot that happens throughout, you know, a breeder could have a perfect tomato, but then you take it home and put it in your refrigerator and, you know, then it doesn't taste good. Um, so it is a very complex, but I think um, wh what you say is true is that we've been breeding and we've developed the supply chain to just get this tomato to the store and so that it looks like a tomato, but not that it tastes like it. And so I think there is, you know, uh, breeders are starting to breed for taste. People are looking at, you know, buying more locally. Um, so that means, you know, we're looking at, can we, can smaller producers produce a better tomato and, and not have to travel as far? So I, it, it's a very complex issue that I think what we've been going through recently and in, in the resurgence of people cooking and caring about where their food came from, you know, is really going to push even harder for us to get to that point. Absolutely. Just a reminder for folks, as you think of questions uh, at home, feel free to put them in the Q&A. We'll ask them uh, as they come up. But I want to ask the both of you, I think relevant to other Crusonia conversations we've had in particular, I, I'm curious first, just do either of you drink orange juice regularly? Are you big juice people? Brian? <laughs> I drink a lot of orange juice, so it's, it's a staple on our breakfast table. So. No. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I can't remember the last time I drank orange juice on a regular basis. I mean, probably when I was growing up, but it's just, um, it's not something that I go for. I think for the, you know, it's been interesting looking at the statistics of the decline in orange juice and there's a uh, consumption. There's a number of reasons for it is, and, and this is probably the reason for me is that I don't typically sit down and have breakfast, you know, like I, then that's when you normally um, have orange juice. And uh, so I don't typically have breakfast and so not consuming orange juice. And then, you know, there's a lot more different kinds of drinks now than there used to be. Um, so I think that people will, will grab a different, uh, you know, something other than orange juice. Absolutely. I related to that. Didn't want to, didn't mean to put you guys on the spot there, but uh, yeah, I think part of one of those reasons that you're probably mentioning, Bonnie, is just sensitivity to consumer sensitivity to consuming liquid sugar and, and the fact that juice has, you know, for all of its added or, you know, inherent nutrients and, and kind of positive halo effects, uh, it's still drinking liquid sugar. And, and I wonder if you could talk about, you know, is there potential for technologies or solutions to help, um, you know, create a little bit more value in, in like a juice product that could make it, um, that could create a, a value, you know, as we see this market for, for orange juice decline and as that affects the price of fresh oranges, you know, is there an opportunity to take that decline and, and turn it into something else or open up a new market and, and reintroduce customers to oranges in a different way that maybe is not so negatively impactful to health? Well, I actually cooked, um, I just thought it was like, I cooked a dinner last night that had oranges in it. So it was and oranges and fennel and onions and some other things in it. So, and olives. So, um, I, you know, maybe there's, that's not, but me using that one onion, I mean, one orange, you know, during, during a week is not the same as, you know, drinking orange juice every day. But um, I think in, in other global markets, um, still uh, orange juice consumption is still going up in China and Brazil. And so there's still markets, you know, other than the U.S. that orange juice consumption is going up. Um, as far as your question about repurposing it, I, I don't know, Brian, do you have um, 
in experience of what they do in Florida and other ways to use orange juice? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to use it. You can do it from cooking and basting and other ways to get it there. I think that, you know, people will try to bucket orange juice as just it's sugar, but there is a lot of other vitamins and nutrients that are in there that, you know, are, are overlooked. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's both quick acting, short acting sugars and other things that are beneficial in those juices. I think there are other ways to use orange juice. I think that it's maybe pigeonholed a little bit to being an only a breakfast thing, you know, at least in the U.S. And I think that, you know, the expansion of using orange juice for other purposes would, would help the citrus industry quite a bit. Definitely. Uh, Brian, while I'm, while I'm on you, uh, I heard, I read recently that you actually just received the patent for, for Vizmax. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the rollout in terms of what the timeline is for when farmers or, or growers might be able to have access to that. Yeah, so we are working our way through the, the EPA to get that product on the market. Um, and I think that the, the goal would be to be in the hands of citrus growers by the end of 2022. So not too far away. Yeah, well, and let me ask for, for the both of you here, not to not be exclusively optimistic on, on the opportunities here, you know, what are the risks that, that as we look to these kind of new technologies and roll them out and, and pursue adoption among farmers? Is there anything, you know, to be cautious about as we both use and message about these new technologies? Well, I think for, for all technologies, you always got to wonder about the, you know, is there residue? Is it effect, you know, what's the effect on consumers if there is residue? Um, you know, I think that for biologics, there's a lot less chance of there being residue for a lot of biologics, but it's always unknown. If you look at everything from, you know, medical history, something that's safe now in 30 years will be banned for causing cancer or causing something else. And so it's a, it's an ever evolving cycle of new things. And, you know, you, nothing jumps out as far as a step back now, but I'm guessing in 20 years, everybody will look back and say, I wish we would have done X or used this differently. And you know, that's my comment. Yeah. Bonnie, any thoughts on, on what the risk could be or, or how you know, caution, maybe cautious steps we should take as we introduce and explore these new technologies? Well, they all have to go through some testing protocol, um, a little bit less than some of the chemicals. Um, so you don't have to do residue trials, right? For your product, Brian, is that right? Uh, we have to have the EPA waive that right. So yeah. they still review it and say, okay, you don't have to, but there still is a, <laughs> a process. Yeah. And, there, and there's good reasoning behind not requiring that, which is a benefit to biologicals as well, because we can get them to market faster. But um, no, I, you know, I don't see anything that, that I particularly worry about. You know, I think the companies do a lot of testing and, and, you know, you never, you can't know what you don't know, but I, I think that the testing protocols are pretty good. The, the only risk I can think of is if there was too quick of a leap to go entirely into biologics and not use any conventional, I don't think that the biologics is in position to cover all of the needs of a grower. And I think that there, you know, this is going to be a very gradual process of introducing biologics where they're needed, but there's always going to be some conventional need because we're not going to meet the grower demand without having those conventional products. And I think conventionals are, you know, new and updated products are coming out all the time that you know, are, are what the consumers are looking for. But I think to have a complete leap would be a, a risk factor. I think it is a, it's a baby step across the spectrum. Yeah, well, and, and not to be kind of pedantic about my own question, but it, maybe the risk is not 
not doing it, you know, be, remaining too committed to our existing technologies in a way that, you know, is, uh, uh, here's a question. I mean, could citrus greening become so severe that we don't have oranges anymore or we don't have commercial, commercially available oranges? Is that a risk that is on the horizon? I think it could be a risk that the production is low enough that the cost becomes very high and grower or consumers will switch to other fruit to meet their demands. I think, you know, if you had enough drop in production, there's kind of a flip side to that. So um, I don't think it'll completely take out all the oranges, not like the, the Cavendish bananas, which got wiped out almost completely, but you could have a pretty severe reduction and, you know, there's cost consequences to that. And the consumer has to pick based on cost too. Um, so I have a question, <laughs> Brian. So if, um, when, when an orange grove is old, either through citrus greening or, you know, they just, they don't last forever and they're at the end of their useful time, are people replanting oranges back in those groves or are they planting something else in Florida? It's a mix. You have some that are still going back in with citrus and you have some that are exploring other fruits or other vegetables and they're kind of diversifying a little bit more than just citrus. So you have kind of a mix of the two and depending on how you know their outlook is on the citrus industry over the next few years. But you do have some that are switching and some that are maintaining and reinvesting. Yeah, it's so interesting with these really long perennial crops. I did my thesis work on cherries in the Central Valley in California. And at that time, there was a lot of phytophthora issues and a lot of trees were going out um, due to that. And it was also during the time that almonds were becoming really, you know, everyone was eating almonds. And so, so you really saw this turnover of, you know, less and less cherries being grown because they're such a hard crop to grow and, and more almonds. And so you, you kind of have these evolutions, but... Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, we just have time for a couple more questions and one of them is gonna come from Fred Nichols. Fred, are you there to ask your question? Uh, yes. Excellent, go for yeah, it. Yeah, so a uh, question for the group. Um, are there various crops that seem to respond better or are more economical viable uh, for, um, for biologicals than others? And as a follow-up to that, you know, if you are a startup with some biological products, uh, are there any specific crops um, other than citrus that uh, you may recommend uh, to target? Yeah, I think what you'll find is if you look at the corn and soy, they've been bred pretty, I mean, they're kind of uh, power horses. They've been optimized, optimized, optimized. They are one of the hardest things to have a biologic work on is really the corn or soy, just because the breeding programs are so large and they're, they're very optimized systems. I think if you go to non-bred crops, and I think produce, and um, they're probably the best responders. Um, if you look at tomatoes, potatoes, um, peppers, those are all really good responders, lettuce. Um, but those are ones that respond very strongly to biologics. Um, those are probably where you're most likely to see your effect. And to, to push that question to Vani as well, I think maybe not necessarily from the scientific perspective, but from the um, market perspective, I have seen companies, you know, have a little bit more success in, the, in some higher value spaces. I'm thinking of like wine grapes or table grapes, you know, where, where producers maybe have a little bit more leeway to invest in, in 
riskier earlier stage technologies or they have a lot more to gain if, if a technology is, is successful. Identify any other kind of crops where there is particular opportunity. I think that's the other problem with corn and soybeans is, you know, producers have such razor thin margins that every technology has to pay every year no matter what. And it's hard sometimes, you know, when a startup is working through its first couple of iterations to, to show that to a farmer well enough to convince them. So other thoughts there, Bonnie? Well, I would say that, you know, overall, producers have pretty razor thin margins in produce as well. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think one of the areas that makes it interesting is just 15% um, of the produce sold in the U.S. is organic. And so I think when you, when you, you know, organic growers have a lot fewer options for control. And so if you want to fit into, you know, if the product fits into the organic category, not all of them do, but if, if you fit into the organic category, um, then those growers are going to be really hungry to find something, you know, that works in, in their product. So I, you know, I would certainly look there as well and, you know, tomatoes, any, any kind of produce. Well, we're coming up on the hour, just a few minutes away. It doesn't look like we have any kind of final questions from our audience here. Again, thank everyone so much for, for just being a part of today's conversation. It's been lovely. Uh, so I want to offer a big thanks as well to Brian Thompson and Bonnie Estes. It's been fabulous to have this conversation with you, as well as iSelect Fund and our partners, uh, which include Benson Hill, a partner of the Community Foundation of Greater Memphis, Cushman and Wakefield Commercial Advisors, EY, United Health, and our newest partner, Methodist Labonner Healthcare. Now, the Crisonian Conversations are free to attend, and we really appreciate that you were joined us here today. But unfortunately, they're not free to produce, so please consider donating to the Crisonia Fund at crisoniaonthedelta.org to uh, go there to donate or click on the donation link in your follow-up email. If you're looking to revisit today's conversation or to keep the Crisonia Conversation going, follow our LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and our very lively Slack channel. There's always fascinating conversations going on there day and night. Uh, we also invite you to tell us what you liked and what you thought could be improved about this presentation in our follow-up survey. Links to all those resources will be available in an email you'll receive following this event. And don't forget, most importantly, be sure to register for the Crusonia on the Delta Food is Health Digital Forum broadcasting live from Memphis on Wednesday, September 30th. The forum is free, but you do need to register at crusonia.org. So we'll see you all there. Thank you again for joining us today. We're looking forward to seeing you again later this month. Thanks.